And that the vaccine. Well, I'll just always say what Fauci said to Congress under oath. What did he say? The mask mandates are not to prevent transmission. They're to encourage people to stay at home. Just like with condoms and HIV. People don't like to wear condoms. So maybe if you require condoms, people will have less sex. And that's how you'll actually keep HIV from spreading. That it makes a lot more sense for masks than it does for condoms. You get two people in a room. Are they going to wear a condom? You know, is one of them you know what wear they a condom? used to do at, um, at bathhouses, gay bathhouses? They used to have employees go around and make sure everyone's wearing condoms. <laughs> okay. They did. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's totally... See, that you're just too much a straight guy. You're thinking like dating and stuff. I'm talking yeah. about people who have sex with hundreds of people a year. Okay. Yeah. I just, I can't imagine wanting to have sex. If you, if you put, if I had to have sex in a setting where there was someone who was going to come along with a a flashlight to check, I I would stay home. Uh, You know, that, that's not for me. That, that scene is, I would be inhibited by that uh, public. For some people um, that's a turn on. In other words, sex is about exhibitionism. Yeah. 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 It's all that. It's everything. Yeah. 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 Okay. Well then, yeah, it might've worked in that context. Sure. (laughs) (laughs) all right sublation media viewers uh it is the catrone zone as always the last marxist chris catrone is our guide today uh he is the author of the death of the millennial left which is out now from sublation press uh i'll put a link to uh to the book uh, in the description for this video. And what is in production right now is the audiobook version of The Death of Millennial Left. As I read it aloud, I become more and more of an acolyte of Chris Catrone. Soon <laughs> enough, I will sound just like him. Um, uh, I'm going to work on my impersonation. Um, but Chris, uh, we're going to talk, talk about the Trump indictments and the meaning of that uh, from a Marxist perspective or from your perspective. But before we do... Um, one of our uh, team members, uh, the Reverend John Milton Bunch, has uh, told me today that he thinks that uh, Marxism is a noble religion uh, and that, uh, that the, it functions as a religious uh, category or functions the same way a religion would uh, today. And so I wanted to ask you what your uh, thoughts are about the religious aspects of Marxism and whether or not Marx himself was a religious thinker. Right. So, you know, when I hear it noble, I think Plato and noble lies, mm-hmm. right? And of course, um, I think that Plato didn't advocate that unironically. I think mm-hmm. that there was a critical dimension even to Plato's um, articulation of that idea. Um, so, you know, something that I wrote many years ago now, the Marxist hypothesis in response to Alain Badiou's work was about his own self-description, Badiou, of being not a Marxist, but a communist. Mm-hmm. And like Althusser, he positively invokes St. Paul mm-hmm. as like a model for this communism, right? Right. Um, so ancient, like apostolic Christianity as a model. And of course, St. Paul is big with the Protestants too, not just with the Catholics, and, um, you know, so I kind of get into that in terms of the, the legacy of the 20th century. That is this where we're left now in the 21st century that Marxism has become a religion rather than what Marx thought it was, um, which was, you know, a critical theory of a movement, of a proletarian socialist movement, a kind of a self-awareness, self-reflexive, self-critique of a, a real movement of history as Marx put it, mm-hmm. and even the way Marx put it in terms of like theory gripping the masses, and also, you know, Andrew Kleiman's favorite expression of Marx with sober senses, mm-hmm. right? Um, and of course, you know, Marx and Engels also described their work as scientific socialism. Mm-hmm. And of course, what's meant by science there is raises questions about science itself, actually. It's, it's should broaden our notion of science so it's not just a kind of positivistic empiricism 
um, but is really Wissenschaft, you know, the kind of Hegelian and Kantian, indeed, science, meaning knowledge aware of its own conditions of possibility. Mm -hmm. Right. And so, but, you know, again, Marx lived in a time where there was an already existing proletarian socialist communist movement in the advanced capitalist metropolitan industrial countries. And so he could, he could sort of assume that. Whereas now it's almost like one has to posit the proletariat and as a subject object of history, to use like Lukács' Hegelian Marxist expression, as like a, a belief, right? Um, and rather than as a, as a kind of real historical phenomenon. And, you know, Badu talks about communism as a regulative ideal, right? As like a Kantian ideal, but maybe a Platonic ideal to get back to the noble lie idea, mm -hmm. right? So in other words, something that's not actually true, but it's good for us to treat it as if it were true. And Benjamin Studebaker, um, you know, spoke at a platypus convention. I think you were in attendance and we were talking about the purpose of Marxism. I think it was last year. And Sudebaker divided Marx's thought into two kind of propositions. One is a kind of class analysis of exploitation and the other being the philosophy of history. And he mm -hmm. said that the, the theory of class exploitation was good because it's true. And the philosophy of history is good because it's useful. And so that would also be a kind of a noble lie, a Platonic noble lie. And of course, Studebaker is himself a Platonist, right? An avowed Platonist, as opposed to an Aristotelian, as opposed to an empiricist, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, Studebaker thinks that the salutary politically to be an idealist because it gives mm -hmm. you like a project, right? And so that's, those are the thoughts that occur to me when I think of Marxism as a religion. And of course, there's been attempts at like civic religion in the modern era, a civic religion of like politics and being a citizen, you know, and I think that the French Revolution had some of that, you know, the cult of reason was also like a political project, right? Um, and, you know, it, it, it's funny because when Marxism became an official state ideology, didn't it take on that character of a civic religion? Mm -hmm. right? And doesn't that fundamentally affect it? Um, you know, so when we think about like Western Marxism versus Eastern Marxism, that old trope, mm -hmm. Western Marxism being like the Frankfurt School, you know, that it's unburdened by having to be an official state ideology. Right? Right. And so Western Marxism is free to be more critical. Right. Um, and it doesn't have to be positive either politically or epistemologically, right? Uh, it can it can rather take things. That's why I called my piece the Marxist hypothesis, because of course Badu has the communist hypothesis, but the communist hypothesis again is a kind of noble lie, regulative ideal, aspiration. Well, you you froze for a second there, so it's yeah. a noble lie and aspiration for universal equality, mm -hmm. and. You know, and as old as civilization itself, as as old as social hierarchy itself, that as long as there has been social hierarchy, there has been this undercurrent of overcoming that social hierarchy and and achieving equality. And of course, for Badu, these are ontological commitments about like the egalitarian nature of matter itself, right? It's pre-Socratic philosophy. It's Epicureanism, you know. It's a kind of pre-Plato, pre-Aristotle kind of ancient materialism. Uh, it's Althusser. It's also Heidegger in many respects, the pre-Socratics. And so, you know, and again, from our perspective, can we separate that kind of ancient philosophy and really kind of ancient science? Because that's also the birth of science with the pre-Socratics. Can you really separate it from a kind of mystical mentality or mindset is it, it, you know, it does seem different from religion, and yet isn't it very close to religion in its ancient sources, right? And, you know, I feel like this is what we're facing, you know, when we deal with Marxism as an ideology, 
is ontological claims about the reality of class and mm -hmm. materialist conception of history and this kind of thing. And, you know, whereas I think a more modern philosophical perspective, you know, of Kant, of Hegel, and therefore I think of Marx, would be, these are phenomenal forms. These are not like, you know, ontological propositions. You know, it's not metaphysical materialism. It's not supposed mm -hmm. to be metaphysical materialism, but Badu says, yes, it is metaphysical materialism. Like he, he's willing to say, I'm not a Marxist that way. I'm a communist because I actually am making an ontological claim about the nature of the universe. When it, when it comes to like, um, okay, I just want to clarify some terms so mm -hmm. we're on the same page. <clears throat> Idealism and metaphysical ontology, right, or metaphysical claims about materialism. Mm -hmm. um, the, the idealism I think of, you know, in its strict, strictest sense would be the claim that the category of matter, this comes from Bishop Barclay, the category yeah. of matter is a mistaken category. It doesn't uh -huh. exist. There is no material world. What we have is instead is um, uh, only our perception of consistency. Mm -hmm. that, that is because our perceptions uh, inform us of a, of, of a world that retains its shape and at least in a rational or discernible way, we posit a, a material category, which is the foundation for all of the different experiences that we have. But that, in fact, when we examine that category, we find that it is an empty one, that it, it holds no, qual it has no qualities to it. It is, uh -huh. it is an empty category. So instead, all, the foundation of reality is, is uh, that which is perceivable, it's empirical. Right. Right. Um, uh, but that means that perception or the mind uh, is the is the ontological foundation of reality. Mm -hmm. That's that's idealism to me. That's the way I conceive of idealism. You could have a different version of it, which doesn't include the mind, which would be a platonic version where mm -hmm. the universal concepts mm -hmm. are the foundation in our world as a some sort of distorted reflection of a platonic mm. realm of mm -hmm. con universal concepts. Um, that's another older form of idealism. Right, right. Um, and even that was posited by Plato semi-ironically, like whether there really was an ethereal realm of eternal forms or not. He's, he, it, it more was a matter of we must necessarily think that there is. Yeah, I'm, I, I mean, I, 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 I've only got an undergraduate education in Plato, but I did take a, 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 an entire semester of Plato and uh -huh. was taught by a, a pretty good professor. And uh, what I would say is not that he was being ironic exactly, but that he was being is struggling to be Socratic. Yeah, yeah, words. that's what I mean, semi-ironic. I don't mean yeah. ironic in the sense that he didn't mean it but rather Socratic in the sense of that's a moment in a dialectical, dialogical. Right. I mean, he, right. He, he, um, he came to this, not as a hard and fast position, but as right. one that he had to posit through the course of trying to examine what yes. was yes. and which, if you read deeply into the dialogues, um, uh, you'll find it has been refuted by Plato mm -hmm. himself in mm -hmm. the Parmenides. Right. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Um, right. Mm -hmm. Um, in a in a very uh, complicated and kind of insane platonic dialogue called the Parmenides, which uh, which so that's why I said ancient philosophy is really in some ways indistinguishable from ancient mysticism, meaning a Her kind of Heraclitus view and a Parmidian view. It's kind of like, well, what kind of assertions are these? The School of Materialist Research is a self-sustainable platform where ideas are discussed in ways that would not be possible in conventional academia. The school is defined by its interest in the materialist approach to knowledge. Among its faculty are Julia Kristeva, Amanda Beach, Ben Woodward, Thomas Nail, and Paul Cockshot. The deadline for applications is September 11th. Check out the link to the School of Materialist Research in the description for this video. Well, what happens with Kant, and this is, of course, 
potentially controversial. It's not the way that Kant is usually read. It's usually they're hived off from each other, Hegel and Kant, but I actually think it's in Kant already. Um, well, our subjectivity can change in a way that our natural senses and our organic faculties, our brains, don't change that much, right? So if we look at like, I don't know, 100,000 years of human history, going back to the invention of language and culture and art and religion, going back to religion, you know, I think it's safe to say biologically we have the same faculties, we have the same senses, we have the same neurology, basically, as people back then. But yet, right, our, our objectifications of our subjectivity, our language, our art, our religion, our philosophy have changed, right? So the mind has changed while our sense data perception and our basic cognitive faculties at a neurological level have not changed. And so if our subjectivity has changed, well, well what else has changed? Society has changed. Mm. Right, the practical realm that makes demands of us that would not be there in raw nature, the demands that society presents to individual human beings that are artificial, you know, that are not just natural or organic, that's not just in our genome or however we mystify. Because I think these are all mystifications. I think in the future we'll have a different, it, we'll understand that it's not just DNA, it's other things. Right. Mm. I mean, I'm pretty sure we'll revise this. Right. Um, mm. <laughs> you know, we've been revising these things. And so there's no reason why we would stop revising these things. And so but nonetheless, so with Kant, it's the true, the good and the beautiful, the ancient virtues. Those are all still operant. And yet we know that those are not eternal. We know that all cultures, all communities, all societies have had notions of the true, the good, and the beautiful, even though they've been radically different from each other. Right? And so can the truth change and still retain the category of truth? Yes. Can the morally good and the practically good change even while retaining a notion of the good? Can the beautiful change and vary and still retain the concept or the meaningful category of the beautiful. Yes, that's Kant. That's Kant. And so the mind can change, you know? And 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 again, I think that the proposition is that that changes, you know, with, with Marx, the, at least, but with Hegel. And like I said, I actually, it is in Kant. It's, you know, it's on the first critique, but it's there in the prolegomena. It's there in other writings, certainly there in the other critiques, like the practical reason critique, the second critique, and the third critique. Um, the mind changes historically, and it changes as a function of societal, social practice. The practical realm changes and gives rise to, so we don't have to have ethereal, an ethereal realm of eternal forms of straight lines and rectilinear objects and circles that don't exist in nature because those categories come from our social practices. They come from what Kant called desire. We have a concept of straight line because we desire it in practice. That's where it comes from. Um, we want it, right, practically. And again, not as isolated human, human beings, but in the social relationship and in the social practical realm. And that that's what drives on the development of the mind, the development of the idea, the ideal realm. Right. So, you know, to say the ideal is prior to experience, well, we can just say society's prior to experience, meaning we're all socialized um, before we have an experience of anything. Right. Well, I, I want to uh, juxtapose a philosopher who I think really is in opposition to Kant, uh, to him now, a, a philosopher that's been championed uh, since 1968, by more than a few French Marxists, oh, which boy. is Sp Spinoza. Oh yeah. Uh, um, so, because I want to ask, like, how do we count? First of all, we need to go back to the religious question. But how do we? Because um, there's two parts to this question. I'll ask the second one in a minute. Mm -hmm. But the first one is this: How do we uh, decide what counts as change in our subjectivity. Um, Sonoda 
would posit that there is really one universal nature um, and that it is both physical and mental mm-hmm. and that it is uh, e- equal to or the same as God mm-hmm. and that mm-hmm. and that uh, all of the particular manifestations of reality within nature um, are are ultimately manifestations of that totality of God, um, but that because of their particularity, they uh, can be more or less aligned with the totality. Um, and that, you know, the, the totality, the, tr- the truth, the divinity mm-hmm. of nature mm-hmm. is accessible to us through, not just through reason, but through what he called affect, I think, or what's yeah. called, it's called affect. So yes. you can be guided by your emotions and feelings and uh, you know that's true for Kant too by the way i teach the third critique and i'm just about to start teaching it at the art institute and of course for Kant, uh emotion and feeling not the same thing because one is comes from within the other is about external objects feeling they're Mm. all rational and they're the indeed the highest faculty right because they're Um, synthetic you know right okay um i i tend not to have put that much faith in my emotions but we can talk about that in a, in well, a it's the reason in other words Kant thought we need to know the reason why we might feel things right yeah so that, there's a rational content to our feeling right very freudian yeah. yes right yes <laughs> right. i think that's i think that's true but um so spinoza believed this but he believed that uh, when you are acting in a way which is aligned with the totality of nature and therefore is, I guess, fundamentally healthy. And this is, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sure this is a vulgar reading of Spinoza. I haven't read Spinoza himself in a while. But then you will feel better and you'll be more vigorous and you'll be uh, healthier overall. And, and then when you are out of step with the totality of nature, things will go awry. You'll become This is very bourgeois, of course. <laughs> right. you know, no, Spinoza is very bourgeois revolutionary thinker and it's a wonderful kind of humanistic I mean right. so just you know because I know that we have some watchers and listeners who are philosophers or want to be philosophers and who always hate where we talk about these things because it violates their technical notions of how we should discuss things that they're pulling their hair out whenever we talk. I, I may be one of them, you know, like I, I have you might be background. one of them too. And, you know, whereas I've been, you know, teaching this stuff for 20 years and I think that I talked to you about this uh, kind of mm-hmm. offline where I said, you know, my goal as a teacher is to get out of stale debates that have been going on for a very long time. And mm-hmm. I take as evidence that they're stale, that they're still ongoing meaning they're unproductive, they're unfruitful. So one is monism and dualism. And that's what's raised by Spinoza. In other words, is Kant a dualist and Spinoza a monist and is Hegel a monist as opposed to Kant a dualist? This kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and is Descartes a dualist as opposed to Spinoza the monist? So let me make a plea for dualism. Okay. Right. My plea for dualism, because I'm not sure that Spinoza is opposed to Kant. Well, if he couldn't be, that would be anachronistic. But we do know that Kant critiques Spinoza. Mm-hmm. And so why did Kant critique Spinoza? Um, because he thought that there was like a question begging going on. Mm-hmm. Which is to say, um, again, this bourgeois conception of like freedom as harmony with nature. Sort of eliminates agency in transformation, right? Um, he calls it a, um, a variety of hylozoism, right? Like kind of making the universe alive, mm-hmm. right? And that we're just part of this living universe. And he said what that, what that fails to distinguish is that actually some things are alive in ways that other things are not alive. Mm-hmm. And not only that, but humans are alive, again, in this subjective agency sense, in the sense of freedom, in the sense of transformative actors, in a way that nothing else in nature is. 
And so that the plea for dualism, and I'm speaking more from Adorno now, would be, um, although I think it's consonant with Kant, Hegel, and Marx, um, is that you want non-identity. In other words, dualism allows you for a non-identity, whereas monism doesn't allow for that non-identity. And yeah. it doesn't allow for movement through contradiction, right? It doesn't allow for the emergence of non-identity out of identity. And, you know, that, that again, it, it would be, you know, Spinoza's undialectical in his monism. And so what dualism does, doesn't have to be an ontological dualism, but you could say, you know, one thing that dualism achieves is that it allows you to talk about the self-transformation of the subject and in the world, right? Because, of course, that self-transformation of the human subject, of Geist, of whatever you want to call it, society, right? Um happens not in and of itself, but also as a function of tr changing the world. To use the 11th thesis on Feuerbach, right? Mm -hmm. that, um, and so to, to be able to articulate that change might require a dualism, right? That monism doesn't allow for, right? In other words, yeah. you know, back to Badu and communism and the ontological properties of matter and the fundamental equality of everything. Well, if that's the case, right? In other words, if communism is just an ontological like quality of matter, then that means we're always already communist. And so what does that do to the political realm? Yeah, like it, it, in, in, to put it differently, Spinoza claims that we're all always already nature yeah. or God. Yeah. So why are we ever out of step with the totality uh, would be the question. Right. And you have to retreat into the Christian solution, which is depositing a free will is how that um, Christians typically. Yeah, we can have handle. error. Right. But which, the only you know, freedom we have is the freedom to err. Right. <laughs> which, <laughs> in other words, why did God give us free will according to Christianity? So that we could make the right choice. Don't right. make the wrong choice. Right. But right. <laughs> but that means you can make the wrong choice. But right. And that's the only time you are <laughs> out of step with God's will is or not in being controlled by a reason beyond yourself is when you do error or yeah. when you are sinning. Um, yeah, it's 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 kind of messed up that way. So uh, what. So, OK. Whereas so, with Hegel, it's different because even error contributes to reason in fact reason is a process of error yes right? according to hegel yeah <clears throat> right so but to, to um which i which i quite like that um mm -hmm. it, it it gives you it, there's more freedom in that more freedom um, yep that's the bottom line but the, the the question then to go back to the religious uh the claim that marxism is religion or that Kant Kant was is re religious thinker or Hegel is religious thinker. I mean, I think you have to kind of grant that Hegel was influenced by Christianity. That there was, so was a way Kant. in which, as yeah. Kant as well, um, that uh, the way in which they were taking up religious thought, sublating um, it. Yes, sublating it. Um, but what I, I guess, the question is with with uh, with this is around the the the, the second category. The reason of yeah. religion. But go well, ahead. The, the question is like, can we justify our belief in uh, that hu free human subject, which can it make changes to itself in a way that isn't aligned with God's will or some perfect ideal state, but rather through error? Can we justify that that subject even exists? Or is that simply a leap of faith that we're making? When we uh, posit that our subject exists. I know. Isn't that terrible? So I like to say, again, when I teach this stuff, mm -hmm. and I teach it via, there's a nice little Robert Pippin piece on critical theory from 2003, mm -hmm. and where, you know, it's for the journal Critical Inquiry, and they basically surveyed all sorts of intellectuals, including the editorial board of the journal, you know, what's the current state of critical theory? And what Pippin says, critical theories become uncritical. And the reason it's become uncritical is that postmodernism has wrecked our sense of change and freedom. 
Um, and by ditching the grand narrative of history, we've we've abandoned this this account for change. So the, what I like to say, and you know, and he pegs it, Pippin pegs it this way. You know, it's not an accident, as Marxists like to say, or they used to like to say this. It wasn't an accident that change, freedom as transformative, not freedom to be, not Aristotelian freedom, not the freedom to just be what you would be by nature, but to change, to transform, to be other than what you would be by nature. That becomes the center of philosophy at that moment in history in the late 1700s because look at what's going on <laughs> Do you know like you know look at what had been going on for a few hundred years you know the protestant reformation you know religious wars in which millions of people were killed you know capitalism the rise of you know bourgeois society based on commerce the destruction of feudalism uh you know the scientific revolution right that suddenly philosophers had to say how do we account for this how do we account for change? Mm -hmm. Right. And that's why it's the beginning of modern philosophy, because the ancients are not concerned with that in the same way. They just aren't. And the moderns are, and we're confronted with this. Now, fast forward to 2020 fucking three, Maine, mm -hmm. where we are. Yeah, well, I can't believe it. <laughs> we are living in a time of change. Not so much. Like, in other words, the political realm is so static. For the last 50 years, you know, this end of history neoliberal shit has been going on, right? And there's a very intense effort to prevent any change, right? This is what we talk about with the Trump indictments, right? Mm -hmm. Even the slightest change is seen as going off the rails, right? Mm -hmm. That we've got this kind of rational mechanism in place for dealing with everything. And the only alternative to that is basically criminal. Yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, so you know, we have been living under a political regime. I mean, look, how did the U.S. deal with the Soviet Union? And how does the U.S. deal with China now or Cuba now? These are outlaw countries. These are criminal states, the criminal regimes. And of course, there are criminal regimes. They like, weren't just, a, China wasn't a criminal state just a few years ago. I don't want to remind well, you. It was always a criminal state, but it was on its way to reform. It was right. it was kind of in prison. They were having some parole hearings. Like, okay, you can go to a minimum security. We can admit you to the WTO, but you're not out of jail yet. And if we ever do most favored jail, nation status, you know it, it. Yeah, that just means you know that that doesn't mean very much. But there are other varieties, right? So to to put the tankies aside, right? It's also Iran. It was Saddam Hussein's Iraq. It's Putin's Russia. Like, you know, it was Milosevic's Serbia. It was whoever fought, runs afoul. It's, you know, it, they become outlaw criminal states. And so basically it's like there's a rational way of doing things, which is the bureaucratic technocracy, corporate state, world economy state, Washington consensus state. And then anything else is basically outlaw criminal you know, we will starve you to death, we'll bomb you, we'll do our whatever, right? And right. so where's history in that? There's no history to that. If you're just rational or criminal, there's no historical process to that. <laughs> you know? This is why I, I go on and on about how the Cold War ended, the Soviet Union collapsed, that we were meant, that the, the promise was that, the, that the Russia could become part of the world order that they were supposed to be joining on NATO, condition right? on condition of joining this rational technocratic neoliberal whatever yeah but if it's so rational why must it exclude why does it always end up excluding that's would be my question why do we end up in conflict if it was where does really crime irrational come from? where does crime come from in other words where does social pathology come from of course i would say it comes from capitalism well i would too but i don't but i don't want to start with that i would i want no, to I point to it i want to I say know. hey right no i mean yeah. i don't want to concede to that either but i do i you know i think if i were hillary clinton or if i were tony blinken or if i were who's the national security advisor who's our age, I think. I think uh -huh. of him as a millennial, but I think he's our age. Um, you know, 
I just think if I was in the mind of one of these people, right? Or like Condoleezza Rice. Jake, Jake Sullivan. Jake Sullivan. How could I forget Jake Sullivan, right? And he's 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 younger than we are. I think he is. Older millennial. Uh, uh, well, 1976. Does that make him a... I no, think he's, he's still, us. He's Gen X. He's Gen yeah, X, he's yeah. Us. He's us. He's us. And, you know, and I just think, okay, what do they think? They basically think the world is basically criminal and it's slowly being reformed. Uh, right. social behavior yeah. into some kind of rational world order and that this is an inevitable process and we just have to contain the damage in the look meantime. that's if you, i remember taking a world history class at portland community college when i was about 20 right and the te history teacher said to us look you know world history is a history of barbarism world history is a history of despair it's ugly it's uh, you know it's it's uh, the treatment human beings treating other human beings like animals yeah um we're gonna just we're gonna learn all about plagues and massacres and uh the barbarism of humanity and so now today where you are in history we have this moment of relative civility which we might be able to hold on to and we might not be able to hold on to but you know looking back we're still yeah, in barbarism right we're still but, in prehistory, according to Marx and Engels, right? Right, I agree so, with you, but yeah. but but we're but that was like we're in this some these cement buildings on a campus, you know, with computers everywhere, even in the nineties, and you know, looking through uh, big sheets of glass out at the artificial turf, and like we are we're outside of this process we can look back we can look at it you know so you know just to bring hegel in right so mm -hmm. i would say history has always been this kind of animal realm of you know uh i mean is it barbaric barbaric's a little different it's like decadent you know mm -hmm. savage you know is it just savage um you know are we still in this kind of animal realm of eating and being eaten to quote adorno you know negative dialectics well, yes, but then the flip side of that is that we've always been rational. That society yeah. has always been rational from the beginning, mm. right? That's and Freud. So, that's that's Freud's observation as well. Civilization and its discontents. Like we we push against our barbarism, our our ids, our 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 animalistic nature by becoming civilized, and that we means the instincts. Yeah, accepting a limitation. Accepting all cultures do that. All right, communities, right. all human communities have done that, have demanded that sacrifice. Right. Right. And so, you know, I think that, again, where we are, you know, we have to hold on to the idea that there is a goal of emancipation beyond capitalism, where we can throw all of this stuff into the lumber room of, of history and the medieval shop of horrors the medieval torture museum that everything that we do now that we think is enlightened and rational will inevitably appear to be uh benighted and and, and barbaric um we have to hold on to that idea because i think that otherwise socialism becomes just a technocratic tweaking of capitalism mm -hmm. you know we have to hold on to what appears to be more utopian um and at the same time, we also have to understand that our capacity to achieve that emancipation is not out of nowhere. It has a long history. Mm -hmm. right? We have been developing our capacities for freedom, actually, and we might still be developing those capacities. I mean, capitalism is definitely actively undermining those capacities all the time. Yeah, it's also it's also developing them. It you know, in some way, or at least preserving them something. Mm -hmm. Right. And so it's there. And so, you know, again, a dialectical conception is important here rather than just a kind of Pollyanna view or a kind of utter despair view. Um, and, you know, I mean, we might prefer the way religion deals with these things that it, it, it forgives the, you know, the fallenness of man and the sinfulness of man and, you know, I mean, you know, because we were just talking with Sarah Bamari, who, you know, comes from a Muslim background, but probably a secular background uh, in that, you know, cultural context, and then has converted to traditional Catholicism and, you know, very traditionalist and has found some some meaning there. 
And, you know, I would say that's not irrational. Right. You know. And it's not even anti-socialist. It's not even we, anti-socialist. It's not anti-social. Like all the things that we might want to throw at religion negatively, it isn't. So mm-hmm. to get back to um, the question of Marxism as a religion, right? Mm-hmm. Is belief in freedom religion? Right? I mean, is that does that require a leap of faith? I don't know. I mean, it, in other words, I think there's historical evidence. Uh, you know, of freedom. And again, to get back to a kind of a, 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 a kind of a neutral conception of freedom, right? Like freedom's not just good. Right. Freedom's bad, meaning we're free to fuck things up. We're free to create problems for ourselves to make ourselves suffer. Right. right? Um, not just to benefit ourselves or benefit the world. And so, you know, freedom beyond good and evil, to use Nietzsche, Right. Mm-hmm. To just say, you know, um, and, you know, there seems to be a, hell, a lot of evidence of that, of of massive human caused human participating, contributing to change. Right. I mean, if to say yeah. that we haven't our character hasn't changed after the atom bomb, I think is a pretty daring thing to claim. You know, and it seemed to me to require ignoring or after uh, the highway, the international high, uh, not international. Yeah. International and interstate highways were, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, built it, that changed the character of America and of Americans when when that jet travel, everything. I mean, the thing is, unfortunately, we do tend to think about this in an alienated way, namely technologically. Right. And so I, you know, I teach art, art history. And so I can just say, you know, art is radically different across cultures, across historical time, and yet still remains recognizably art. Yeah, but we have a problem in the realm of art making this claim because there was a turn where the development of art itself was turned, was the artist turned against it Yeah, as a notion. And so you have... Yeah. Uh, a lot of art, which is intentionally just blurring boundaries and just liquidating kind of art. Yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. Like, um, flux, fluxus would be sure. maybe a good example of that. But of course, right. there's more direct examples of that where other right. values replace aesthetic right. values in right. art. Um, so we have a real problem there, trying to point to the history of art as justifying our our conception of the. But, you know, uh, you don't even have to get as radical as that. You don't have to get into, like, radical 20th century avant-garde movements. You can just look at the history of literature. You could look at the mm-hmm. difference between ancient epics and modern bourgeois novels. And you can oh, yeah. look at, you know, 19th century changes in the novel form, you know. Like, right. Oh, yeah, that's, that, I mean, yeah, I just watched uh, the movie A Room with a View the other day. Oh, yeah. And I, I just found it to be very rom- romantic, but not in the technical sense, uh, you know, not in the not as in the literary sense, although it may have been. But mm-hmm. that uh, but it was this great uh, film about freedom. Right. It was about, uh, you know, a woman breaking free and a man breaking free yep. through their love for one another from what was kind of obviously a decaying social order. Yeah. Right. And so it was like, wow, this is this is a great film about um, the power of bourgeois notions of love. Yep. And 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 I have this uh, I get kind of grief about this. There's a there's definitely a kind of a uh, contrarian component of of what I'm about to say. But I, Mm -hmm. I think people need to remember that heterosexuality was con- mm. conceived of as a disorder in the in the 19th century. It was conceived of as being when you were overwhelmed by your sexual appetites for the opposite uh-huh. sex, right? And then you were, uh, and you, your life was, you know, you had to shape your life around these desires, and you know, something to be treated, and that without the embrace of heterosexuality you wouldn't ever have gotten the uh gay rights movement either right and you know and that 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 
that even heterosexual love that was supposedly is normative was a break from the norms. Uh, yeah, it was neurotic. Uh, right. And uh, so I, I feel like we, we, and so that means we should celebrate it. Really. We shouldn't, we shouldn't try to, we shouldn't conceive of it as fixed and reified and normative, but really recognize the freedom in it. Um, oh yeah. And uh, so that's what I saw in, in the room with the view, which was a kind of, uh, you know, and uh, uh, Forrester, Ian yeah. Forrester, was a tremendously forward-looking writer. I just know a little bit of. I've read, oh no, I've just seen the movie Room with the View. I don't even think I've read the book, but I've I've read um, the Machine Stops, mm. which is like a vision in 1909 of basically the kind of life we're living today. Oh boy. Uh, no, this I don't know. Okay. Yeah. So. Anyway, my point is that we should recognize that we can find the literature of change yeah. uh, existing and that that literature is very different from what came before. And Yeah, I, and, and yeah. like I said, you could even just keep it in that realm. You don't have to get into like Kafka and Joyce. You know, right. you don't have to get into uh, more radical, you know, to just observe this. And so there are just many indexes of this. I mean, maybe religion itself, you know, religion has changed. You know, there's there's changed just within the Bible of what, re, like within the Old Testament, what religion is changes. Oh, yeah. You That's know, right. like, look, there was a Reformation. And certainly there's that, right? There's the, there's the, there's the Reformation. But just if you go through the prophets, like the ancient, the ancient Israelites, the prophets, mm -hmm. Each prophet really changes the nature of the Jews' relation to God mm -hmm. and therefore what God is. Um, and, you know, like, I don't, it's just, it's, it's clearly there. And um, again, you know, as a Marxist, I would say there's a function of like society and history. It's not just a function of God, like changing his agreement with, with his creation. Right. 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 Um, the covenants, um, you know, and, you know, this is very Hegel, you know, that, that again, um, <clears throat> to say that society changed and to say that God changed his covenant with humanity is to say the same thing for him. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, I mean, but again, Marxism, I mean, it does come down to freedom, I think. In other words, I don't think it's like. I mean, it would be a shame if, like, I don't know, class became an article of faith or something like that. But certainly freedom, a freedom beyond capitalism, and capitalism broadly understood, right? This is something that you and I talk about a great deal. In other words, capitalism is not just as the money eggs and the private property of the capitalists, right. but as the so basic social relations, um, you know, like, can we and and understanding that not just as economic but like political and cultural you know that there's a kind of basis in the commodity form for democracy for one person one vote kind of political agency, oh yeah right and um you know so just imagining that we're tasked with getting beyond this right right yeah and so you know again uh to recognize how present society is so very different from what came before and therefore there's no reason why it can't be different yet again the thing is i think you said something earlier i want to push against hold on, i'm going to blow my nose and i'll edit this part out but um ah uh, um bless you yeah there's a um okay so you said a little while ago that we've been living in a fixed political moment where you know because of the neoliberal orders stranglehold on our politics and our society we feel as though things are frozen and unchanging but i i would say that maybe as far back as 2001 mm -hmm. but certainly as mm -hmm. uh, as recently as 2016 mm -hmm. it has been clear that political change and there and with it a massive change to the social order and the and the way in which capital is managed is happening that we we are living through a moment of change yeah um and that uh th that that cannot be denied although there i think there is an attempt to deny it yeah to deny it um but i mean 
But what I well, I think there's a what's sad is I think there's an attempt to deny it on all sides. That, oh, that, sure. Um, that uh, uh, that the left is no more willing to embrace the possibility for change than the right is at the moment, and that exactly. includes the Marxist left. And in some ways, the right is more willing to embrace the change. We'll talk about Vivek uh, Ramaswamy. Yeah, yeah. New, yeah, new um, 1776 revolution. We yeah, did. I know. I was pretty shocked to hear him say that. And I was like, oh. That used to be just... an old staple in American politics. I think that uh, Nixon called for that in 68. Yeah. yeah. It used to be an old staple. Right. right? But I, didn't, I haven't heard it from a presidential candidate in my lifetime. No. I believe. It's not there, right? Yeah. Um, uh, but no, Kennedy was talked about it. Yeah, Kennedy well. certainly in 60. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, he did. It was like a Cold War thing because it was about like the American Revolution versus the Russian Revolution. Who was going right. to make the claim on, you know, the destiny of freedom. Right. And now Vivek Ramaswamy is saying, I'm going to be a force for change and freedom based on the founder's vision against the Democrats. It, it kind of is what... And, and the establishment say, Republicans, too. Yeah, yeah. Right. And the re- establishment Republicans. He's very Trumpy well. in that way. I mean, I'll just say, to plug my book, The Death of the Millennial Left, that, mm-hmm. of course, I've been saying this all along about what Trump represented, that Trump represented an acknowledgement of the crisis of neoliberalism and specifically a crisis of the Republican Party, Mm-hmm. Right. Um, you know, but again, the Republican Party is the loyal opposition. So even the Reagan revolution, it's not like anti-New Deal. It isn't. It, it is. It does assume a lot. He was a New Deal Democrat, Ronald Reagan, mm-hmm. um, as was Nixon, even though they were opposed to each other within the Republican Party, because mm-hmm. Reagan wanted more of a aggressive Cold War foreign policy, you know. Um, but, you know, That coalition, all the elements of it were in crisis prior to 2016. So neoliberal economic policy was in crisis clearly since 2008 at least, but really starting with the recession of the Bush years. Um, The neocon and liberal human rights interventionist foreign policy was in crisis. When you say the recession of the Bush years, do you mean Bush senior or Bush junior? Junior. Okay. I thought dot com bubble, yeah, jobless recovery. Like, do you remember the years between two thousand one and two thousand eight? So they couldn't. Yeah, first, yeah. I mean, like, like that. I think the dot com, the dot com bubble burst right at the end of Clinton era, right? Didn't right. It? They Wasn't couldn't it? decide whether it was nine eleven caused it or whether it was the dot com bubble that caused it. Right. It was a little right. bit of murky. It was a little bit of a mystery, and it didn't mm-hmm. really. They kind of deferred dealing with it until the financial mm-hmm. crisis of two thousand eight. But you right. could say that there were rumblings prior to right. that, right? Yeah. Um, and so, uh, just to put on, you know, in in the senior era, there was also there was a, a recession small, in the nineties, small in the recession, late eighties, early nineties. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, there are these little recessions, right? Mm-hmm. But obviously, the Great Recession is called the Great Recession for a reason. Right. The question is whether the structural problems of the Great Recession were evinced before that and i think that they were yeah right so there was a 90s boom there definitely was there was an 80s boom but there was also a recession between the 80s and the 90s and there was a recession at the end of the 90s but there was a kind of a recovery that seemed to mean that structural issues could be deferred or avoided until 2008 then it became like okay what is this what are we dealing with right Mm -hmm. and so you know, that's the economic realm. Um, the foreign policy realm, war on terror, definitely, you know, put paid to the idea of like this project for a new American century, that it wasn't going to be just like that. Mm-hmm. And, but also, I mean, as hard as it might be for us to recognize it right now, in the midst of wokeism and anti wokeism and all this stuff. Cultural conservatism had also played out. It had played out, right? So it was leaked from the George W. Bush administration that they had utter contempt for the evangelical Christians. 
mm-hmm. that they just knew that they were, you know, Karl Rove, they knew that they were just exploiting them as a voting base, but they didn't really believe any of it, right? That, obvi- you know, obviously what they used to offer back then, the Republican Party was a constitutional amendment against abortion, which was never going to pass, right? And so, mm-hmm. do you know, and so it was clear that these things associated with the new right, with the Reagan revolution, had played out, had spent themselves, right? Because the Cold War hawkish neoconservatism had morphed into the project for a new American century, which was bipartisan. Mm-hmm. It was Madeleine Albright. It was Clintonian for sure. And it was in a sense Kissingerian as well as neocon, right? Even though these are supposedly opposed things, realism and neoconservatism, they had come on some kind of consensus around the project for a new American century. The war on terror showed, eh, it's not going to be as smooth as all that. Um, and, you know, in the U.S. may not be able to play this role. Well, I, I read the, I remember the, the uh, project for a new American century is actually there was a section in it saying that they are need there was a need this is why the conspiracy theorists which i flirted with for a while uh-huh. thought that it was an inside job and all that the 9-11 yeah, yeah. because they were no, like they there's a need the for a new yes. pearl harbor and we need to launch um basically a military offensive uh and the only way to do it is to have experience a new pearl harbor and all of that. So there was a hawkish quality to the new yeah. project for a new American century. Now, I don't believe that it was an inside job, um, but I do th- think that there was a lot of opportunism to try to establish sure. a project for a new American century. And I also think that, look, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, there should the, the, the real promise was that, you know, like in the movie Network, the the, the corporate boss is like oh there is no there will be no nations so just be mm-hmm. at&t and dupont and yeah it should and, have been a peace dividend in a global village right exactly in a and trade between nations you know and all uh, you know a rising tide lifts all boats and all of that kind of thing and it didn't happen somehow it didn't happen it's shocking it didn't happen just like that anyway and it it, it didn't certainly didn't happen without political hiccups but again, if we right. look at like the dominant party, the Democratic Party, not just right now, not since just since 2020, but this is the dominant party since FDR. Right. Their view of things is that these bumps along the road are just bumps along the road. Right. That there's an inevitable, you know, in other words, you know, people can resist it. They can make it painful. They can screw things up. But generally, this is the arc of history. Right. Um, you know. I think it would take, I don't know what it would take to shake them from that belief. Because, frankly, the only alternative to that mm-hmm. is socialism. Right. Really. Yeah, or 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 a conservative realism. That's the other. Uh, yeah. Know, kind of a pessimistic conservative realism, which I think... You mean it, like a Mearsheimer? Yeah, like... Yeah, we are. Uh, we're gonna fail eventually. This isn't gonna end well, but we have, you know, the the uh, natural inclination mm-hmm. and completely understandable uh, tendency to act as a superpower while we are one. And the realistic, you know, as a realist who wants to defend my nation on basically self-interested grounds, these are the kinds of policies that I would. I wonder whether prefer. the realists believe that entirely or not in other words you know because i don't think that they believe that like global capitalism will inevitably collapse no but just that the united states is a superpower will. right right which is different yeah. right and yeah, so yeah. the question is because i think that the democrats their idea and this is what freaks out the right and why they say like globalists and blah 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 right that the u.s has like a role to play in maintaining global capitalism but the U.S. might decline in global capitalism, and that's okay. We just have to handle that responsibly, you know, and we have to sort of preserve the international rules-based order, you know, that we can't we can't make it happen ourselves, but we can, you know, we can have partners in this, you know, global liberal democratic future. It used to be that the, the establishment believed in things like world peace. Yeah. Like uh, the World War One was a war to end all wars, yes. right? Yep. And the realists so now come along. 
Right. But but the realists say, no, there will be no end to the wars. Th these conflicts are inevitable. We always have to prepare for them. That's how I understand the realist position. You know, the, the real politique without that utopia. Yeah, it's a, it's a curious thing. I mean, I haven't examined it closely to, to look at what they make of the fact that obviously, you know, like a Benjamin Constant view which is that, you know, a modern commercial global civilization that we live in, wars are too costly, right? They're too costly, they're too disruptive, and therefore, objectively, generally, wars will be avoided. Increasingly, people will want to avoid wars, right? Mm -hmm. And so I don't know what they would make of that kind of liberal conception. Um, no, I think they're profoundly anti-liberal, the, the realists. I think that you think of a, them as that. Yeah, because I'm not sure. I mean, in other words, they might think of capitalism as just great power projection. But I think that they might also have to acknowledge that there are other dynamics at work. Right. Well, I would you think know? they they would, but I think that they would acknowledge it when they're not being realists. Like Reluctantly. In, yeah, right. right. Or right. So their realism is sort of in in the pinch. We have to remember that there are these nations and they're making power mm -hmm. assertions against each other, right? Mm -hmm. And that, you know, right. So to, to sort of not lose sight of that, I think, is their big. Right. You know, um, that we can't be we can't be lulled into complacency. Right. right. Yeah. We can't neglect. But right. Listen, and, I want to talk about Trump and uh, Vivek Ramaswamy and and the indictments and all, but we, we've come up to an hour here. Okay. I think we have at least addressed, if not overcome, the objection that Marxism is only a religion. I don't think that uh, the Reverend John Milton Bunch will be convinced, but but I... I mean, am, let me put it this way. Mm -hmm. Marxism is a religion as opposed to what? Meaning, not only as opposed to what Marxism would be otherwise, but as opposed to any political ideology. Don't all political, you know, isn't like liberal democracy, like a religion, you know, at the end of the day? As opposed um, to realism, as opposed to nihilistic, pessimistic realism and the acceptance that we're all sinners and all we can do is maybe pray. That's that. I mean, I mean, that's the kind of. Twist. Yeah, maybe. I mean, it could be. It could be the selfish gene. Right. Right. Like we need the that. noble. We need religion, but the 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 wise among us see that it is only a noble lie, and that. But nonetheless, we need it. Um, and right. it's, so it's a psychological comfort, but that in the end of the day, it's the selfish gene. Right. You know, everyone's trying to kill everyone else all the time. Or if you're you want to go a different route, you're like with Ernest Becker. In the end of the day, we're all just worm food. And all of our hero projects are doomed to fail and everything is going to be snuffed out and we can't deal with the horror, which is the void of existence. But we need these civilizational hero projects. to. I'll just say, I know that I've said this, I've said this in a previous uh, discussion that we had, right? Mm -hmm. Which is, that's all well and good. Like, maybe that's <laughs> true. But there will be people after us. There will be generations after us. You know, and they're going to be struggling. And so the question is, what legacy are we leaving them? Are we have you, more or less equipped to deal with what they're going to have to struggle with? Have you seen the movie Rebel Without a Cause? Sure. In the in the planetarian scene, yeah. the, the 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 what's being described is the death of the universe. Yeah. And that's the background for american culture in the 1950s and i think that's still our background today it's like yeah 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 there'll be future generations but ultimately humankind is just a blink in the cosmic sense of time to be destroyed by forces that barely acknowledge our existence um and that's 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 the the i think the fundamental religious impulse in the rejection of marxism is this this sort it of could nihilism. be it could yeah. be a kind of gnosticism Right. Right. Um, you know, it's not a hostile nature. It's an indifferent nature. Right. That surrounds us, you know. Um, it's not that there are forces that don't care about us. There are forces that don't care about anything. Right. Including them, the, the, the themselves. forces themselves. Yeah, right. 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 And so, do you know, like, I kind of feel like, well, we care. 
And so we ought to act like we care. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, uh, well, okay. And on that note, I'm going to end this first half of the stream and I'll end this first half of the stream and then we'll, we'll start again in the parrot room. So I'll send you a new link in just a few minutes. If you enjoyed this conversation, please do consider supporting us on Patreon. Our patrons help to make sure that Sublation Media can continue to provide interviews, videos, books, and articles that are critical of the left from the left. If you are tired of remaining stuck within bourgeois ideologies and politics, help us sublate them both. <laughs>